Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. My guest today is Dr. Aki Yoshida. Dr. Aki owns three offices in the state of Hawaii, and he teaches for GMI. Today, we're going to be talking about the cervical spine. More specifically, we're talking about the nuance of the Gonstead seated cervical. We all know this is a difficult adjustment to master. Lately, it's been brought to my attention that there are many who say they practice Gonstead, but their cervical adjustments are, well, sloppy at best and downright wrong at worst. This last week, I graded over 100 Gonstead setups for my classes, so it's fair to say I've seen it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Rather than point out what can be done wrong, our conversation today will focus on what proper technique looks like. It's then up to each of us to honestly look at ourselves in the mirror, possibly literally, and evaluate what we are doing right and what we are doing wrong. Some of these concepts may be new to you, and if that's the case, then great. I have no doubt that Dr. Aki is going to help you to learn something new today that you can apply tomorrow. I need to start out with an apology though. Unfortunately, we had some problems with Dr. Aki's microphone at the beginning, but it doesn't last long and it does get better, I promise. So without any further ado, Dr. Aki Yoshida. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Dr. Dave. Let's start off. Can you tell everybody how you got into chiropractic and more specifically, how do you ended up in Gonstead Chiropractic? Oh, you want to know my mixer story. <laughs> oh, so, you got a mixer story. Great. <laughs> yeah, mixer story quite a bit. So um, when I was in senior in college, my degree was a degree in sports science. So I love sports. I came to the States from Japan to become a professional boxer. Sorry, I take it back. It's not a professional boxer, world champion. So that's oh. the reason why I came to LA. <laughs> and during the senior year, uh, being a exercise physiology student, I needed to do an internship. Then I needed to finish about the hours. So that's the reason why, man, I need to work somewhere, either hospital or clinic. At that point, I couldn't speak English that much. So that's the reason why I was looking for some place, take me as I am. And I was looking, looking on the chiropractic and acupuncture office. So that's how I started to get into the chiropractic office and doing an internship. I didn't know anything about the chiropractic. But uh, they are going to give me hours. So I went in as a senior student, then started exposed. And what I noticed quite a bit was I had the experience in about being in the hospital is so negative things. So being in the hospital is so sad things. But in that office, chiropractic and acupuncture office, they have so much love, so much fun, so much, you know, happiness. So that's the reason why I, I got into chiropractic direction and uh, the guy sent me to Palmer. So that's how I got into uh, chiropractic profession. Nice. Now, before we dive into our topic, you have a couple of practices in Hawaii. And so yeah. I know from experience, it's so easy to just be a single practitioner, just have your own office, do your own thing for so long. How did, how did you get into that? How did that grow to where you ended up with multiple offices and you've had a lot of interns come through there? Um, a lot of people come work with you and you're almost always, always taking other people. <laughs> so um, how, how did that come to be? It's just all about the passion about spreading the Gonstead chiropractic to our community and to our state and ultimately to other countries. Because these are the things I cannot do it by myself, right? You know, right. single practitioner, I uh, can help that maybe one city, maybe, right? But if I want to make a, a little bit more bigger influence, I cannot do this by myself. Right? I cannot be five places, six places at one time. So that's the reason why just pure joy of spreading that the chiropractic in our communities or other locations, that's the reason why. We just hired two more, so we are blessed to have eight more doctors, including myself, nine doctors, working together, uh, trying to make this happen in some way. I don't know what's going to happen, but we'll see. All right. Um, 
Okay, so today we wanted to talk about cervical spine. And um, perhaps the unique thing here is that you teach a lot of cervical spine stuff with GMI. Uh, I teach for Life University. And so from a teaching perspective, I think we see a lot of the same things. And we both know that the cervicals are the area that students struggle with the most. I would actually say even practitioners struggle with the most, whether they're willing to admit it or not. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about about the cervical spine, why it's a challenge, what we have to work with. And so I guess we'll kind of start with some of the basics of the biomechanics and what makes it unique and then what we have to do in order to give ourselves a chance to work with it. So um, I'll let you go ahead and start. Like if you were going to, if you were teaching a seminar and you were going to introduce somebody to cervical spine, what would you highlight first as this is the mo first foundational thing you must know to have any chance at this? To me, first, like we as an instructor, we as a teacher, we need to get rid of the perception of cervical is the perfect things to adjust. I think, you know, in my opinion. So, but to that, like you know, or when I lean on the maybe PI for the pelvic adjustment, or I can kind of move, or when I lean and you know, block it through for a new chest, or I can kind of move something. But uh, for the cervical spine, we have uh, so much biomechanical movement going on and uh, so much involvement about the flexion, extension, rotation, lateral flexion. I think we need to really pay attention for the a little bit intricate part about uh, how to set up and how to make a contact and how to think about the older stabilization at the same time. So that might be the reason, reason why. I, I don't feel like, you know, this is something we can muscle through it or maybe you know, use the ski to block it through it. Yeah, yeah, we can, but I think we need to consider more intricate stuff. That might be it. Yeah, I agree with that because one of the things that I often tell students is the reason cervicals are more challenging than, say, lumbars or uh, thoracics is because cervicals are the time when we're not using a table to stabilize. So in side posture, we've got a table that helps us with our stabilization. Or on the knee chest table, we've got a table that helps us with stabilization. But in cervical, that thing's just sitting out in the wind. And so stabilization is a key thing, which means that you need to understand the biomechanics, both for your adjusting hand and your stabilizing hand. And that's probably why stabilizing becomes more of an issue when it mm -hmm. comes to um, cervicals versus some of the others. So. Um, how do you incorporate stabilization into the concept of what needs to happen? So stabilization-wise, I really, really think about, well, I just step back a little bit. And we still use that quite a bit, you know, the cervical strap. And also, more I practice, more I start to change the angle of cervical chair then we use that angle as the part of the stabilization as well. But going back, I think we really need to focus on the stabilization with three points stabilization. Then that's something I talk quite a bit through the GMI or like, you know, going to the life or going to the shaman, you know, other seminar as well. So focus needs to be three points stabilization with equal vectors that yeah. unique term i use is vectors i love the you know science part and the mathematic part and i'm a nerd so that's the word i use that's so funny i just recorded a video for teaching purposes and i drew on the board and i went through a whole explanation of vectors and how changing the vector changes the direction of the thrust and why especially on cervicals why vectoring is so important because same thing, we teach the three stabilization points. And on side posture, it's three stabilization points with the table being one of the stabilization points. And again, you lose that when you go seated, but you don't want to just give up a stabilization point. You still need three stabilization points with equal vectors to control it. So yeah, that's that's funny. We're teaching the same thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also expand on that. Like, you know, it's really intricate when it comes to the vectors. Because if we use the one two vectors, two vectors, it's easier to match. But when we use the three vectors to try to match, 
you know, you need to kind of visualize right now, right? You know, okay, so three different angles coming in together and for some way stabilize perfect. Otherwise, otherwise we do this all the time. If we are sloppy, we're going to start to twist the cervical. We're going to start to over lateral bend and uh, creating about the scissoring like cervical chair adjustment, which we make an awesome noise, but not doing any correction. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly right. Um, yeah. And you see that so often that it's funny to me. Here's one of the funny things, things that will happen is I've got a student and I can see from their setup that they are 95% correct. And yet they're telling me how frustrated they are because they feel like they're nowhere near being able to move it. So often I'll take something like their stabilization and I'll move it maybe one or two millimeters and then I'll give a little more pressure and I'll say, now do what you just did. In fact, this just happened like a week or so ago, a student who couldn't get the adjustment. I moved her hand about a millimeter or two, and then I gave a little more stabilization pressure with my hand. Mm. I said, now exactly what you just did. And that bone moved like it was nothing. Mm -hmm. Now, also, if I want to add on the practical part of it, uh, we try to do everything in the hands, right? You know, the stabilization angle needs to be, you know, okay. So S2I and, you know, A2P to go against or go go against the adjustment direction. But also, most of the time, what I see for the um, maybe student or like, you know, doctor's mistake is where we stand determine yeah. that vector as well, or where you are catching the patient head determine about that vector as well. So sometimes, you know, we as the instructor or we as the teacher, we try to correct the hands right but we need to see the bigger picture when it comes to the stabilization maybe you need to step a little bit maybe one inch lateral then set it up then oh man stabilization angle perfectly matched up it's sometimes not the hands give us the perfect stabilization well it's not the chest it needs to be everything together and you know also height as well right you know are you standing up really really tall or are you standing up really low, catching the head right here? I still remember that, like, you know, Dr. Gunstead, I think as far as I know, he was wearing the clinic kind of like, you know, attire, right? When he's seeing hundreds of hundreds of people, right? Then the back in the day, like, you know, man wears uh, some oil, right, in on the head, right? Then I remember that some of the instructors saying, like, you know, Dr. Gunstead clinical attire always had the same oil stain means you know he's i'm pretty sure you know this is my guess but he's catching patient head on the same location of the chest every single time so he already know the angle about the elbow know the angle about the wrist know the angle about the adjusting hand as well so i think like you know key is where you are standing like we need to see the entire picture then, yeah. you know, cervical adjustment going to be come together, in my opinion. Yeah. And I've had students who were setting up and there wasn't anything necessarily wrong with it. But I'm looking at them going, you're not comfortable. And if you thrust, you're going to fall over. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to fall over. Well, then let's start with that. Let's get you a good foundation. Let's get you so that you're stable first. Then we'll start tweaking from there. So you got to have that good foundation. you got to have that good placement. So, uh, yeah, I think mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. It's got to start at the very beginning and not rush ahead trying to make the adjustment in too big of a hurry. I do think that's how a lot of people mess up is they get in too big a rush to hurry up and get to the adjustment part and they get sloppy on the setup parts. Mm -hmm. Then since, you know, audience is like, you know, learning about the cervical chair or, you know, maybe young doctor, you said that. So, you know, we all experience this, right? Oh man, these days my hand, right hand is, you know, blasting, you know, it's awesome right hand, right? You know, we do this all the time. Oh man, right hand is good. Then when it comes to the left hand, mm, no good. Then what the heck? So for the practice perspective, my really like, you know, tip is don't, don't practice on the end product. We always need to practice. Step back, start from the beginning. Set up on the flexion, bring it back to the neutral, lateral bend, then practice on the right side. Step back, do a left side, practice. You need to do this back and forth, back and forth to creating about the equal balance. 
I think that's a more like, you know, suggestion when it comes to, I, you know, sometimes, you know, oh man, my right side is good, but left side is not good. I hear that all the time. So I think like, you know, that's a good practice to do, you know, including myself. Yeah. When I was learning, I would do something where I'd set up on the patient. I might set all the way up and then I would break it all the way down and take my hands off and I'd reset up again. And I'd take my hands off and I'd reset up again, maybe do it three times. And what I discovered was that one of those three was better than the others. And it might be the first one, it might be the middle one, it might be the last one. So then I started asking myself, what did I do differently? What made that set up better than the others? Because if I could figure that out, I can duplicate it. Mm-hmm. And then if I duplicate it, so I'm doing that every time, then let me do it again and see, can I still keep making certain setups better than other setups? And so even now, sometimes I'll set up and I'll have it, but in my head, I think I could get it better. So I'll take my hands off and reset up again. Yep, I got it better because I can kind of dissect what I think was missing from that setup. And so I do think that the setup is a huge, enormous predictor of what's going to happen when you actually thrust. And a lot of times we take that part for granted. Mm -hmm. Then when you practice setting up, we should do it in front of mirror or somebody needs to take a video or somebody needs to take a picture. Because I was, you know, I was doing a meeting with other doctors yesterday, seven other doctors. And, you know, we are literally like, you know, setting up. What does it look? Setting up. What does it look? Right side and left side, back and forth, back and forth. And, you know, we are just critiquing critiquing each other. Or just, you know, right side, you do a little bit too much extension. That might be the reason why you don't feel comfortable. So mm-hmm. we got to practice in front of mirror or in front of colleagues as well. Or taking a picture video that's a very very awesome things to do when it comes to the stabilization and the delivering about the awesome cervical chair because you know when you uh when we are practicing by yourself nobody gonna critique us besides me yeah and even then that might not happen <laughs> yeah well so. you know yeah but you know we need to right you know otherwise yeah. we continue to be away from the you know principle well, it's like driving a boat or driving a car. You have to constantly make minor corrections just to go straight. And if you make those minor corrections, you get to go straight. But if you stop steering the wheel, you're going to end up making a major correction or you're going to wreck. And I think that's mm-hmm. what happens. If we're not making those constant minor corrections. We're going to suddenly realize that we're way off course. And if we're either going to have to make a major change, which can be hard to do, or we're going to wreck entirely. So um, mm-hmm. we've talked a little bit about the doctor placement and where they should be. What about the patient placement? How what should we do with it? We talked a little bit about proper patient placement. So how does that work? This is something like, you know, I'm really exploring right now to find a perfect patient placement. Then it's, it needs to be perfectly fitted for that person. You know what I'm saying? Cause mm-hmm. each person's, you know, low doses is different. Or even nowadays they don't have a low doses in the cervical. Right. So we need to change the little things to make our cervical adjustment really precise. And some of the things I start to change or I start to play with, this is not in the chapter, this is not in the plugger book, but what I'm starting to change is a location of patient body. Is it needs to be super vertical? or slightly extended, or even like, you know, slightly like, you know, extended farther more. So patient verticalness, so to speak. So that's one. But another one is the, another perfect patient placement position is the location of chin. When we do, uh, when we bring the chin out forward, then we are creating about the low doses. When we are tucking the chin all the way in, then we are reducing the low doses, right? So I give you the example. If you have a crazy kyphotic neck is going on, then wherever the finding is, then you are adjusting that neck. I start to play with, is it beneficial for me to bring the chin up more to help that low doses a little bit more? Then said it that's one way but if we have already decent low doses is going on for the cervical already then if i bring the chin up too much now you are closing the zigapophysis joint of a set so 
two locations I really see is do we need to have this patient body super vertical, which we usually teach, right? You know, more neutral, better it is. But some of the cervical is already going forward. So do we need to a little bit more change in the angle about the cervical chair to bring it back? So we start opening up. Then now we're going to bring the chin up or keep the chin a little bit more neutral. These are the little things you can play with before even adjust. Then if we creating about the sweet spot already, then only things you need to do is lift and set it forward. That's something like I really start to play with. And even like in also lateral bend, perfect patient placement as well. We teach, generally speaking, we try to keep it neutral, right? Don't bend too much. Mm-hmm. But what if you have a C7 PRS with big global curvature is going on? Then when we try to do a little lateral bend, is it going to help? Or should I do a little bit more lateral bend in that case since we have a big global curvature is going on? We are not here to adjust the global curvature or manipulating the multiple segment. But I still remember the day Dr. O'Hare say something like this. When we want to deliver the specific adjustment, you need to think globally as well. Mm-hmm. So... After hearing that, then after he's, you know, talking about all the meticulous disc, disc you know, you know, you, I, I think you did the podcast for that, right? Then after that, like, you know, my brain was crazy, crazy hot. And uh, I tried to like, you know, process, you know, with my Asian filter, then try to keep it as a, you know, Gunstead principle. I came up that we need to first creating about the perfect patient placement then adjusting the PRS for that person. Then after I start to think about that, adjustment is way, way easier. Instead of you need to muscle through, you need to use the crazy fast speed, speed, speed. Because misconception about the Gunstead uh, care is, you know, you need to have a big, you know, fast speed. But to me, when we see the old Dr. Gunstead, YouTube video, is he the fastest guy? No. no right? No. He, he, like, I was watching about the old video and, uh, you know, did he emphasize crazy about the speed and he pr- practice and preach about the speed? I think, like, you know, that is, like, you know, I think one thinks, you know, Gunstead chiropractor needs to have a, yeah, some degree you need a speed, to overcome the physics. I know that, but more I see about the experienced doctors, they are not relying on the speed to blast it through. They really like, you know, thinking about where the patient position needs to be in terms of the disc, in terms of the global curvature, in terms of the entire spine, then put it on that spot. Then after that, tonk, done. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of what you're talking about is this is the way I had to start explaining to students because they would push me on this issue. And I was like, how do I explain it so they'll grasp what I'm saying? And I realized the best way to explain it to them is you need to get the bone into the most neutral position before you thrust. And so how much is that? Well, it depends on the patient. Like you said, if it's more laterally, if it's more wedged, you're going to take a little more lateral flexion to get it to neutral. If it's just slight, it's going to be a little bit. Uh, same with rotation, same with P to A and the curvature. It just matters, do they have a lot of it or do they have a little bit? Because you got to get it back to neutral. And then, like you said, with the adjustment, you need enough speed to break the inertia. But then once you break the speed, you're pretty much hitting the brakes almost immediately. It's like hitting the gas and hitting the brakes. Because mm-hmm. if you don't hit the brakes, you're just going to go until the ligaments stop you. And that's not good. That's damaging. So you're, to really place it where you want to place it, you've got to have a quick acceleration to break the inertia. But then you've got to be able to hit the brakes and stop at a very defined point. With your with your thrust and so yeah it's you're describing a different a different kind of adjustment that i think a lot of people hold in their head as what they think it should be yeah if you have a prs is exactly same for every single patient it worked that way 
right? You know, keeping neutral as as best as possible. But sometimes you need to do more chin up. Sometimes you need to tuck it in. Sometimes you need to lean back just a little bit. Well, sometimes you keep it as neutral as possible. And I know that today podcast, you know, we are talking about the more cervical. But what I'm kind of like, you know, explore exploring is how about thoracic knee chest adjustment? Why cervical chair is the only segment we do a lateral flexion? Because knee chest, prone, people are laying down, right? So it's pretty much, you know, we do talk, we do a con, you know, I know the biomechanical part, cervical chair has a way, way more lateral flexion. Cervical chair has a way, way more other movement as well, since it's free right here. But Mm -hmm. what if we, you know, start to talk about the PRS for the T12 with a global curvature on the right side for a knee chest adjustment. Do I need to keep it as is, or do we kind of play with the location of patient hip to minimize that global curvature, convexity, then adjust? I'm kind of like exploring that area as well. Maybe I shouldn't say as an instructor of GMI, and I'm going to get yelled at. But, <laughs> but you know, what I, what I want to do is, you know, how can we deliver the sweet spot with minimum force, with effective enough, and also at the same time, patient feel really comfortable and the patient feel really easy, then at the same time, still delivering about the result, sweet spot, perfect patient placement. Yeah. You know, the thoracics, because the uh, ribs limit the lateral flexion, I haven't really mm. messed with that much, but but the lumbar is an area where I did find that in side posture adjusting. And it wasn't lateral flexion. It actually had to do with different amounts of flexion extension pre-thrust that if they have a huge lordosis versus no lordosis, do I have to change the position to get the adjustment I want? And I found that, were, that I could maneuver that around a little bit. And it did have an influence because, again, I'm trying to find neutral. And if I've taken mm-hmm. away neutral before I even thrust, then just because I have in mind what my vector should be, it may not accept it if I've got it sitting too much at the extreme. So I got to bring it back to something more like neutral. So I, I've seen that. And so, I, yeah, I think you're kind of onto something there with. Mm-hmm. And I maybe, you know, I'm going like, you know, deviating too much, but like, you know, when we do a side, you know, side posture, right. Should I bring the knee up a little bit more or should I bring in the knee down just a little, you know, again, those are the little things, you know, we can play with before the adjustment. Or, you know, patient body is supposed to be really straight on the pelvic bench. But what if I create a two degree, a little extension to start with? Mm, I'm breaking the quite a bit, you know, rule. But is this help for that patient to deliver about a little bit more P2A and I2S? Or should I bring in that, you know, the straight leg instead of straight leg? Are we just bringing, I don't want to say flexion, but just bringing the tat two degree forward, then setting up the pelvic bench before I adjust. Then when I lean on it, it's already easier to go. That's a kind of like a completely different topic, but in the same realm, right? We need to, or we, you know, we can think about to make the adjustment more precise. Yeah, actually in January at the GMI seminar, Daniel O'Hara talked about that, how doing an adjustment we wouldn't normally do could be beneficial in a particular scenario. And I think really just getting people to think that, don't say it's all good and all bad, it's when might this be beneficial? Well, to know that, we have to know what it's going to do, and then we can figure out a situation where that might be beneficial, should we get in that situation. And it's, it's just a bigger expanding the thought process so we get out of that box of, like you said, it's always done this way regardless of the patient. And it becomes more catered to the patient in their unique circumstances. And I, I think that's how we will continue to get better at this is by making it more personal to that unique patient. And then when people struggle with cases, that might be one of the times they struggle is because they're trying to fit everybody in the same box. And this patient needs something very, very unique and it's not being given. So I, mm-hmm. I think that's where we need to go. Yep. Um, let's see. So as we move along, we've got them in the right spot, us in the right spot. So this is a thing that I did not, I don't think I realized how important this was until I started teaching it. And the more I teach it, the more I go, man, this is way more important than I thought. And that is finger placement. <laughs> mm. Where you make the contact, that the contact location and even the vector of contact makes a huge difference in how you do a cervical adjustment. Mm-hmm. How do you 
do you go about talking about those aspects to make sure that they're getting good finger placement? Mm -hmm. So especially GMI, super straightforward. We are going to teach about the stair stepping, about the finger, and uh, contact hand needs to be a stair stepping. That's the first place to start with. Otherwise, you cannot get the I to S. So I know that this is the audio. You cannot see my finger right now. <laughs> then also another thing, before we place the finger, we need to think about, I was watching about the, again, Dr. Gunstead old video. And uh, he said this really needs to be really straight hand. It's not supposed to be curled. Needs to be straight. And what he was explaining is when we use the straight hand, the contact point and your tip of your thumb creating the more distance, then you create the more left. If tip of the index finger and tip of the thumb is close to each other by utilizing about the curled, curled up contact, then you cannot do that much left. So he was really saying about the straight finger and uh, creating about this hand. Then after that, like, you know, creating about the tissue pool and the contacting that spot. Then another thing I need to say is when we are doing a tissue pool, you're already correcting that subluxation. We need to kind of think that way as well. We feel like, you know, when we deliver the adjustment, we are correcting the adjustment. But as a matter of fact, when we are doing a tissue pool, we are already correcting about the PRS or PLS or whatever the, you know, the listing is and whatever the finding is. So we need to contact in such a way we are already correcting because when we don't get that, get going to begin with, then after that, no matter how much you do a lateral bend or no matter how much chin up, you are not doing any isolation process or you actually fail at the beginning then you just snowballing down, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I started teaching this with the students and I tell them that I'm not teaching you to cheat. I'm teaching you a, a stepping stone method that I think mm. will help you on the way there. And then you can perfect it later down the road because I noticed that I would say 90% of the time when they can't get the adjustment, it's because their failure is they're not getting enough lift at the initial part of the thrust. So I do a similar thing to stair stepping and I tell them to get all four fingers touching the patient's back. Mm -hmm. that, yep. that forces them to drop their elbow mm -hmm. and it forces them to lift before they can go forward. And for a lot of them, that's their first time experiencing how the joint moves correctly. And once they feel that, they can start to work with it. And then once you can work with that, then you can slowly modify it to not have to exaggerate the I to S so much. But initially they need to exaggerate it because they're probably coming in way too flat and that's why they can't get it in the first place. Mm -hmm. I think you're bringing a good point about the vector back again, right? Because mm -hmm. index finger needs to be higher than the wrist, and wrist needs to be higher than the elbow. So we are creating about all about I to S, then deliver from elbow to the wrist, then wrist to the index finger. So everything needs to be this to set it up. Because that's the reason why I said, you know, when we have an issue about like, you know, correcting the cervical or upper thoracic, we need to just kind of like, you know, step back and see ourselves. Maybe standing is already too high. So elbow is already too high. Elbow is more superior than the wrist. Then yeah, yeah. No wonder why you are not lifting first before we set it. So, you know, going back, you know, our position is so important to determine that vector for the contact hand as well. Yeah. Um, and then when it comes to the actual thrust itself, I know there's debate about this. Um, how do you teach the students to thrust? I'm a little curious because I have my own way and I'm probably, I don't know, I do my own thing. But <laughs> I'm kind of curious, what's, what's your way of teaching the actual thrust motion? Mm -hmm. Like when we see the awesome doctors, like I was looking at the Terry Weppner, and Dr. Terry Weppner or other, you know, and then Dr. Troxell, talk quite a bit about is the wrist to me that wrist you know when you have a when you have a wrist you are born to be a chiropractor so to speak because when we move i know obviously like you know this audience cannot see my finger 
But when we move the wrist like this, it's already designed to bring the arc, designed to bring the arc, arcing movement. Then it's a little different. When I, when I, when I, when I see that Dr. Terry Webner is adjusting about the、uh, calcaneus. I know, you know, this is, we are talking mainly talking about the cervical. I know that. But、uh, when he was adjusting the calcaneus, I was looking, you know, Dr. Terry Webner grabbed the calcaneus, right? You know, okay, so delivering from the I2S, right? Then I2S and A2P to bring it back. He literally did the wrist movement like this, then crunk like that. Like, I was, you know, he was not yanking, he's not pulling, you know, he's not doing anything. Then, after that, I was, you know, right after, you know, all the dots started to come together, right? After that, Dr. Frenchy, Dr. Diod, Ron Diod, I don't, I don't know if you, you he,、no. he literally in the Dr. Gunstead old video, right? Then, Dr. Gunstead called him Frenchy, right?、Mm-hmm. Then, he was actually showing me about the Nietzsche setup. He did it. Then, when he showed it to me, when we do a knee chest adjustment, he literally did the wrist movement only. Then, I was like, wrist and wrist. I think that was a, maybe, I don't know, one of the extravaganza. So, that might be the reason why. But, you know, that wrist movement made sense to me. And as you know, sometimes you know, we hear teaching about okay, it is the tricep contraction and the pec contraction, Tri- tricep contraction and pec contraction. Maybe we've heard of this, right? You know, but、yeah. when we do that way, you know, it's a linear vector, right? So, wrist movement g i v e us the beautiful arc, and the wrist movement gonna creating about I2S and P, P2A. Literally, naturally. So, our entire focus is setting up about the patient position, setting up about the sweet spot. The only things we need to do at the sweet spot, all the stabilization c o m e together, everything is stacked out. Then, what you need to do is literally everything is the, just the flicking the wrist.、Yeah. Then, that wrist already g i v e you about the nice arc, I2S, and P2S automatically, I feel like. That is the more, you know, the things we are, I'm going through when it comes to adjustment, force, or movement. I, when I teach, I always use lots of analogies because I figure everything's foreign to everybody. So I try to relate it to something they know. So I tell them when they're holding that hand in that position that we described, whether it's aim, fingers are aimed down, elbows low, if I was holding a frisbee between my thumb and my index finger, how would I throw that frisbee? I flick it over the top and throw、mm-hmm. it. That's my motion. And I tell them, just do that. And it's, it's probably not textbook perfect, but do that. And when you start to get a feel for how that bone moves, then you'll be able to make small changes and dial it into something that's more, more correct and gives you a better adjustment. But it's, it's the best first step stepping stone to starting this process and getting rid of the frustration that happens from slamming people in the neck over and over and over. And after years feeling like you've made no progress, at least you're going in the right direction.、Uh, mm-hmm. Than saying it's got to be perfect or nothing, and then having nothing but frustration in between the two. Yeah, I mean, I know I, I use that analogy all the time when it comes to teaching, and、uh, that analogy, like you know, fl- frisbee or like you know, this lifting moment is so important because you know, we need we cannot give a linear adjustment, period, right? You know, everything needs to be arc, right? Then when we want to do the arc. It doesn't make sense to me. When we contract a tricep, right, it is creating the linear force. When I contract about the pec, unless you maneuver the way, you know, you cannot create in the arc. But wrist is automatically multi joint and you are like really easier to opening up. Then when you're opening up, it's automatically, almost automatically giving you about that arc and I2S and P2A component. Yes, actually, I think that is an excellent point about the linear thrust because when you see adjustments go wrong, that's almost always why they go wrong is that people、mm-hmm. are giving thrust. And that's when you start rotating your cervicals or laterally flexing your cervicals and shooting lateral to medial. So you're creating a lateral、mm-hmm. to medial 
pure force. That starts happening when you're giving these straight linear vector adjustments instead of these three-dimensional adjustments where you're, that come from the wrist flick. And so mm-hmm. you're, yeah. you're not- Rest, rest, rest. Pretty much every adjustment. Mm-hmm. Pelvis, thoracic, everything. If you're not flicking a wrist and getting a wrist involved, then you're mm-hmm. probably not getting the best out of that joint. Mm-hmm. Then also like another good thing is it's going to give you the automatic, you know, we don't talk that much about the speed, but it gives you the automatic speed for you. Mm-hmm. Means it's not the speed created by muscle, but it's almost like in you know, a speed created by our human flexibility, which is the rest. Yeah. And in the life curriculum, we, we kind of, we always talk about the uh, torque. Torque is mm-hmm. part of the but what tends to happen a lot of times is when you focus on torque, they come in and on their setup are applying torque when it doesn't go there. So they're applying torque on setup and then they're exaggerating the torque. And it's like, you've made a, nothing but a torque adjustment. You didn't actually get the lift in it. So I think it's important that yes, the torque does exist, but that torquing that happens is part of the natural speed that happens with the adjustment. And that I always tell students, save it for the end, get it all on there, make your thrust. And then at the very, very end, give that wrist flick that makes the torque. Mm-hmm. Yep. You're doing it at the end than doing it at the beginning. If you're doing it at the beginning, you're doing it too soon. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, when we do a rest, when you use the rest wisely, almost like, again, torque is going to automatically happen to you. Yep. Done. Yeah, and then you're right. The speed comes naturally so you can relax. You're not thinking, I have to be fast. Uh, mm-hmm. A sprinter could tell you that whenever you're sprinting and you're telling yourself, I have to be fast, you go really, really slow. Because <laughs> contracting too much muscle, yeah. you are not using the human kinetic and the human flexibility and the joint applicability component, right? Yeah, yeah. I remember when I used to sprint, it was like, it's time to fly and I just mm-hmm. got to relax and enjoy the ride. And I feel like it adjustments the same way. It's time to fly and I'm just going to relax and enjoy the ride as it goes and get your brain out of your hands and just let that natural... Because you're right, it is such a natural torquing that happens. Just go with it. Um, there are a few adjustments that involve a little bit of unnatural torque, but you get to those as you develop good skills. But um, initially, most of these adjustments, the torque that comes is a very natural direction for the hand. It's nothing abnormal. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Um, now, probably the thing we haven't talked about, that might, we, I think we both agree is probably the most important thing, is the stabilization. <laughs> and so I think that this is where a lot of adjust, a lot of cervical adjustments go south, but it's actually also where a lot of lumbar adjustments go south. And sometimes it's where thoracic adjustments go south is on the stabilization side. And so I think probably point number one is where are we stabilizing? Like, what is the whole point of stabilizing? If we're trying to set a C6, what are we stabilizing on that? Hmm. I need to just uh, think about this one a little bit more because, you know, we do this all the time. So when we, to me, like, again, almost like going back to the Victor principle and, uh, you know, think about the three-leg stool, right? The three-leg chair. We need to have a three points. And uh, when I see the wonderful YouTube video about, uh, you know, quote unquote Gunstead um uh adjusting, right? Then what I see often is only two point stabilization. Like some of the you know teacher teach about, you know, okay, make sure stabilizing segment below or this. But to me in my head, what I visualize is pointing the three vector together, which is coming from the cervical chair wise, your chest, your stabilization hand and your contact point coming together, then key is don't use the muscle, use your body to stabilize. Then when that three vector match together, match together, then at that point, moment of almost like a quietness, moment of like, you know, really like no movement because all three vector come together perfect way, then that's the time it stop. To me, we don't like, you know, forcefully stabilize. These three points match together. Then at that point, nowhere to go, exception for the adjustment force. So to me, when it comes to the stabilization, I don't talk about the stabilization hand is the stabilization. I don't talk about the 
contact point is a stabilization. I talk about the whole three vector come together. If we, it doesn't come together, it's not going to stop. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. So it almost like a perfect symmetry coming together, almost like a pyramid or almost like, you know, equal triangle, almost like, you know, all the three point matching together in a various way. Some are more like S2I, some are more like I2S, some are more like A2P, some are from P2A. So all the three point matching together and coming together, 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 then at that point, one point, stop. But it's not the stop the way we are forcefully pinching the patient's neck, but it stopped. And when we are stopped, nowhere to go, then only force you need to apply is the rest. Then move that segment, so to speak. So I don't teach like, you know, hey, make sure, you know, I make sure like, you know, these three points are matching together as close as possible. Otherwise, you are going to creating about the long lever, liver adjustment. So we need to create a point together for the short lever, then adjust. I think that's yeah. how I visualize it. I think that's really good because I find that a lot when I'm trying to teach students and I'm thinking, I know what I'm doing and I don't know how to tell you what I'm doing. And I know that what you see me doing and your interpretation of it is probably not an accurate understanding of what I'm actually doing. Like you said, the chest plays a big role. Mm. And it's hard to exact. It's hard to um, explain what the role that that plays. And I've seen people, as you said, call themselves Gonstead, but they do an adjustment, and the chest is nowhere near the head. Mm -hmm. Well, when you back off. You've lost one of your points of stabilization. A two-point stabilization is going to be really hard to control. So most likely, what's happening inside in that bone is not going to be straight P to A. It's going to have an element of rotation or something else. Because Rota yeah, the three points you can pin them together. And mm -hmm. so you see, I usually do this. We have a. They're called PATS, uh, palpation and adjusting trainers. Uh, it's a 90 pound dummy that gives you no help and the heads are really heavy. So I sit him up and I've got him in, on my chest and I often show them how applying a force and not stabilizing with the others, how it makes the head move. And so if I'm gonna give this force, but I ideally don't want that head to move, these two points better be really good and have a nice lock here to be able to thrust into that. And so then the only way you can do that is it it forces you to drop your hand lower. A lot of times people are too high because if your hand's too high above your adjust, if your stabilization is too high above your adjusting hand, then when you give a force, you're going to end up scissoring. Mm -hmm. uh, I always tell the students, I don't want to see your stabilization hand pulling up, trying to create distraction because that's not stabilization. As you said, stabilization is all three vectors coming together in the middle, not pulling away from each other or one suddenly deviating because the study of vectors means that that third vector, that final vector is now totally askew if the stabilization hand is pulling in a different direction. So mm -hmm. yeah. I, yeah, I think that study of physics and vectors is like really important to understand how adjusting needs to work if you're gonna really stabilize and get things moving where they should be moving. Mm -hmm. If I add on the one more thing about the stabilization and uh, we can talk about this forever, but also stabilization hands wrist angle is really, really key for the stabilization. If Hi I always teach about the hyper extended wrist going to be the good stabilization hand. The reason being is when we start to do a little bit more vertical, then it's easier to go this way. When we are hyper extended, the weight of the elbow going to sit on the wrist, then wrist stabilization going to sit on the patient, then it's already matching up. Then again, when we are there, I don't need to put the muscle in there. I just need to drop your knee a little bit. So utilizing about the antibody to bring that stabilization together. It's there. I don't need to use my muscle. I don't need to do this. I just fit it together. Then mm -hmm. use my antibody to bring the vector together, stop, then thrust. Yes. That, that wrist angle. Because if you don't have a hyper... I, I think that's coming from the Dr. Pennebaker, Gary Pennebaker, talking quite a bit about it needs to be a really hyperextended. When we are hyperextended, it's strong. If you are flat and straight or neutral, it's weak. So this hyperextended, Pennebaker talked quite a bit about the stabilization. So if I add on one more thing for the kinetic part, you know, it's all about the three pieces together. Then each 
stabilization points played、uh, their own role. Then each point has、uh, their own angle, but we need to match together. And、uh, one of the key I teach often is you need to have a hyper extended wrist. Otherwise, it's going to be easy to go somewhere else. Yeah, that's, that's really good.、Um, and I'll have to post this、uh, video <laughs> to YouTube so people can see what <laughs> you said. Because if they're not getting it verbally, we'll have to show them what it looks like. Okay. Because yeah, I think yeah. it's really, really good. Because you're right. I, it's one of those things that I do it all the time, but never even thought that I do that. And you're right. That's one of the keys that if it's not brought to somebody's attention and they don't know to do that, they may not. And,、um, and it is going to change how you function with it.、So、you're right. A hyperextended wrist on a stabilization wrist is a big deal. To actually be able to let the weight of your arm do the work.、Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Then you don't need to use the muscle. It just、uh, u s e the entire body. Then you, then, you know, remember, like, you know, Dr. O'Hare's you know, explanation. When Dr. Gunstead delivered Dr. O'Hare's uh, auntie, uh, she got、uh, some goiter or thyroid issue going on. Then she said, you know, you need to record this. She said, this Dr. Gunstead's hand is too. Soft pillow, <laughs> right? Then, you know, when we match the vector together, I don't need to focus on the hands. Our body is the stabilization, our three points is the stabilization. The only things we need to focus on is bring it together, stop, rest, then deliver.、Mm-hmm. It's funny, as, as you've done this more and more, and you get better and better at it. Do you、yeah. find you, you think less and you feel like you do less and you get more out of it? Yeah, yeah. Then we need to use our body in a wise way, right? Then that's、yeah. figuring out part because, you know, we are taking care of patients 10 years, your case 20 years, right? So we got to get going with the most efficient way. Yeah, efficiency is a big deal that we, we do have to look at.、Um, let's talk a little bit about the uniqueness of the vertebra because. A C7 adjustment is not the same as a C2.、Mm. Um, I often tell students C2 is a challenge because of its line of drive. C3 is a challenge because it's often hard for people to find.、Um, C7 T1 can be a challenge because sometimes it's S to I in its line of drive or relatively、mm. so compared to you. So let's talk about, a little bit about those line of drives. How do you make those subtle corrections? In order to, to get it, like, how do you target it? How do you aim and know kind of where you're headed before you get there?、Mm-hmm. When we read、uh, Dr. Plaga's book, you know, he clearly t a l k about the angle of the zygapophysis joint is different. And also, like, the motion about the arc is different, right?、Yeah. And、uh, so that's something, like, you know, we need to think about. But to me,、um, maybe I, I'm a bad. Uh, bad person to answer this, but I think, like, you know, when we put the, all the three vectors together, to me, it doesn't matter. So I know that, like, you know, yeah, but mechanics is different. T2 is different from the C2. But when it comes to the stabilization, To me, when we put the three points together, I think like you know, everything is equal. I think, but one thing we need to play with is if you have an anterior head carriage is going on, then you are adjusting the C2. That place alone is already tension is going on. So if we are adjusting the C2 PRS with anterior head carriage, I'm going to bring them way, 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 way back to the neutral. Then when we are neutral, With good stabilization, it's g o n n a be good. On the flip side, if it's a T2 PRS adjusting, then again, still anterior head carriage is going on, then open wedge is going on, so to speak, on the posterior side, then you make a, maybe like effort to close the open wedge on the posterior side as much as possible before you even adjust. So, I think, like, you know, when it comes to the, okay, what is the mechanics of like, you know, C2 and T2 difference? I try to find,、uh, again, sweet spot, patient, perfect patient placement. Then, when we deliver that adjustment for that placement, I think everything's going to be easier, in my opinion.、Mm-hmm. I might be wrong. Yeah. So, then really, 
I would say when you're doing the difference between the two, the only real difference probably is the, is the target. Like when you adjust your adjusting finger, you have a target in mind. Is that, is that right? Like you, in your mind, you kind of imagine the target, you know what you're aiming for, right? Mm-hmm. The only thing that really changes is that target might change angles. So a C2, it might elevate a little bit. So I'm aiming a little higher, C2 mm-hmm. might a little bit further down. So we're changing our target point, but everything else about the adjustments pretty much staying the same, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, example, going back to the C2 on T2 on, on dairy head carriage means like, you know, that C2 is already maybe hyperlordosis going on. I don't know. But when we have a hyperlordosis, then do a regular extension, then you are closing the facet furthermore, right? So if that that's the case for the C2, we got to bring it back neutral, then creating about the happy spot, happy placement, then deliver. To me, that's more like, you know, makes sense to me. Instead of try to change it up about the C2, just creating about the environment where the C2 going to thrive or T2 going to thrive or, you know, C6 going to thrive. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing we haven't talked at all, so I th- and we probably could do a whole podcast just on this and maybe we should, but... We haven't touched it at all, so I want to touch it just a little bit, and that is the upper cervicals. Mm. Because I know in my x-ray line drawing class, the part students have the hardest time with is the upper cervicals. And I know that in Gone State class, the part the students have the hardest time with is the upper cervicals. Because they're so unique, and they're so different, and the line of drives are funky. But I think that one of the keys is something we've already talked about, and that is the wrist action. That when you're going to do an atlas, the wrist action's key. And even a PS occiput, wrist action is key that if you can get that wrist to get involved, that that's a big part of it. So are there any other major things with that upper cervical area that you think that you notice are real hangups for students that when they're trying to learn this, that it seems to really hang them up on it? It's so funny. Uh, yesterday during our weekly doctor's meeting, we are setting up about the C1. And then, you know, some are like, you know, more experienced doctors, 20 years experience. Some are like, you know, just first year practice. So we have a like, you know, whole different, uh, doctor's experience now officially. So we get a different perspective. I think to me, contact. When we do a contact right, and also after contacting the right spot, then isolation process is right. I think everything going to be way, way easier. Yeah. Like, how you, then again, I'm going to say that, go back, and this is the same theme, perfect patient placement. And when we contact, then we use the jaw a little bit to see how we can isolate, you know, fitting the, some one piece of puzzle together, right? So to speak, that person just using the jaw, using the lateral flexion to isolate that. But first and foremost, I think most important thing is the contact point to make sure that isolating yeah you know something about that i didn't discover until i was teaching i was teaching them how to do it and every time i set up i'm on the anterior tp and every time they set up they're on the posterior tp and i kept thinking why does that keep happening so then i came up with this idea and i said okay you do set up exactly the way you are because we're on the tp you're on the right spot but when before you take your contact make sure your elbow is anterior to your thumb mm-hmm. now the TP. Instantly, they're all on the anterior part of the TP. And I realized that that vector of that contact is so important. But if the elbow is behind, if it's posterior, when you make that contact, you end up on the posterior part of the TP. And now when you thrust, you induce rotation instead of getting the lateral set you're looking for. And it, so it's a small, tiny little thing that turns into a massive difference when you actually make the thrust. So I, I, that's where I think the Atlas, like you said, contact the contact is so important on so many of these and we, and we just kind of blow past that part. Mm-hmm. And also maybe another thing I, since I talk about the isolation process, like anytime when we move either patient jaw or lateral flexion about that segment, that movement of patient body creating a small isolation process or small movement process, so to speak. Because we cannot isolate the segment unless we move the patient neck, right? So it's a meticulous thing. Bringing the jaw just a little bit this way or bring it down for the cervical lateral flexion. 
those are the little things for the isolation process. And also another thing is the doctor's placement as well. I was just, you know, going over weekly meeting as well about when we are stabilizing the hands is not right. Again, it might not be the stabilization hands issue. It's how you are catching the patient head on the specific placement on your doctor's chest. When we change that, the angles start to match up for some reason. So also a doctor's position as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I guess the occiput's the other one uh, that some people have trouble with. And it seems to me, again, the biggest clue that I end up giving students has to do with contact point. That if you, mm -hmm. take, you start low and you come up high enough, then when you set back in with your thenar, you're going to get caught on the ridge on the masculine groove. And a lot of mm -hmm. times when you can't get good, good setups, it's because they're not getting good contact because they're pushing S to I before they've gone high enough to catch that ledge. And so mm -hmm. they're missing it. And so um, back to contact point. Anything else about occiput that you think really seems to hang people up there? In addition for that, like contact point. So when we do a really, really meticulous contact point, this is a key. I know you guys cannot see this, but when we contact, your ear needs to be go like this, like a monkey. Into your ears. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? Like a monkey means, yeah. you know, if we are, ears go like this, no, you are not getting the good, whatchamacallit, like, you know, suboccipital, no, groove, the groove you, we're talking about, right? Yeah. So you are, you know, this is another my teaching skill. If you are, you don't see the monkey ear, means you are contacting you know you are not contacting the groove so to speak because there is a knot you can hook it perfect for the 10a right so that's usually what i have to do is take students and grab their mm -hmm. hands and then place it on that notch once they know what they're feeling for they never lose it again but until they mm -hmm. know what they're after they feel like they're just hunting in the dark and they can't find anything so um, mm -hmm. that contact point and usually also but that's why i tell them you get the right contact point the rest just kind of falls in line but you miss that contact point you have no chance Mm -hmm. There also one more things I added for the upper cervical for the stabilization is again going back to the hyper extended hyper extended wrist for the stabilization. More vertical you are for the stabilization hand, more likely to do a scissoring adjustment for sure. That's a, that that's the probably easiest scissoring location, scissoring adjustment location when it comes to cervical because it's high. It's so easy to knock the things like that way. Sorry, that way cannot translate it to the audience. I'm so sorry. But uh, <laughs> what I'm saying is like when we get the hyper extended rest, your stabilization gonna stay on that segment, right? Then you can maneuver. So I think key about the upper cervical is keep your stabilization hands wrist hyper extended. I don't yeah. know if it's the right English or not. <laughs> well, I think maybe to be a little a little critical, um, when yeah. I watch adjustments on YouTube, I see far more of the scissoring than I see yep. correct gay adjustments. It's Especially upper cervical, hands yes, down. Yeah, upper cervical. Yeah, because they're not getting, and I think that that extension is the trick to getting to getting rid of that bad habit. Um, and I I imagine if people are sticking it on YouTube, <laughs> they probably are pretty proud of what they've done, and they probably don't even know they're doing it. So I think that's why it's important to get it out there that. Um, rather than calling people out, you self-police and get mm -hmm. some extension in that wrist and start blocking it and stabilizing it the way it needs to be stabilized. It's probably the better. We don't critique anybody else. We just uh, just and take it internally, and we're gonna try to be better for yeah. our patients. Right? Yep, yep, that's the deal. But yeah, and I mean, we all have enough things we can critique about ourselves. There's not much reason to look elsewhere. Like I remember the first time a student videoed me adjusting and then showed me the video and I was like, delete that and never show it to anyone ever again because I hated the way it looked. And so at that point I started saying, okay, if I know how that, this was years ago, I thought if that, how it's, if I know how it's supposed to be done and it looks like that, can I do it and make it look the way that it should look? And the more I started making it look right while doing it, I started getting better results. And so I, then I became obsessed with really looking into it and trying to figure out um, how can I get my alignments better? How can I line things up better and make, make it all work a lot better? So um, I definitely, I appreciate you coming on and talking to me today. It's been awesome. Um, I, I like the way you think and I like the way you analyze these adjustments. Um, and it's been uh, super helpful to really go through some of these details. I think a lot of people are going to get a lot from this to be able to 
to have a, a map for critiquing themselves and figuring out how they can make their adjustments better. So thank you for joining us. I know it's very early there. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate you, Dr. Dave. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Aki for joining me at four o'clock in the morning, his time, I might add. I love talking with Dr. Aki because his curiosity never ends and he's always looking for a better way to give a more precise adjustment. In the Gonstead work, good enough is never good enough. Dr. Aki is a great teacher and he does a wonderful job teaching this particular aspect of the Gonstead system. If you'd like to learn more from Dr. Aki, he'll be teaching at the Gonstead Extravaganza next month. So be sure to join us in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin, and you can learn from him in person. Another aspect of the extravaganza is the mechanics workshop. This event is your opportunity to bid on a one-on-one -on -one seminar with the experienced doctor of your choice. The options include doctors Rick Burns, Rick Elbert, Jeannie Taylor, David Geary, Dan Lyons, Denny O'Hara, Pam Troxell, and Lori Sender O'Hara. This is an opportunity unlike any other. So save up your pennies and don't miss out. I'll be helping to run the mechanics workshop along with Kristen Fellows and Josh Lawler. So be sure to stop by and say hi, even if you aren't participating. The mechanics workshop will take place in the clinic garage, which has been cleaned up and turned into a classroom. It even has Dr. Gonstead's famous Cadillac Elvis parked in the garage. This is just one of many awesome events we have planned for that weekend. I'll let you in on a few more over the next few weeks. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.